Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Okay, today on the podcast, I welcome Dr. Terry Walls. Dr. Walsh is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa. In addition to being a doctor, she is also a patient with secondary progressive multiple sclerosis, which confined her to a tilt-recline wheelchair for four years. Now, Dr. Walsh restored her health using a diet and lifestyle program that she designed specifically for her brain. And now she pedals her bike to work each day. Now, today's episode, in part, documents how she accomplished this. Dr. Walls is the author of The Walls Protocol, How I Beat Progressive MS Using Paleo Principles and Functional Medicine, and the cookbook, The Walls Protocol Cooking for Life, the revolutionary modern paleo plan to treat all chronic autoimmune conditions. In this episode, Dr. Walls shares her struggles with MS. She outlines her miraculous journey of healing and the protocols she developed to get out of her wheelchair and back onto her bike. We talk generally about autoimmunity and how the immune system gets confused between foreign cells and self. We discuss the upstream pathologies that are shared by most autoimmune conditions, including mitochondrial dysfunction, inflammation, and leaky gut. Now, if you're interested in functional and integrative medicine-based programs with teachers like Dr. Mark Hyman or Dr. Roger Schweld on topics such as gut health, sleep, immunity, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. My mom prints out the reviews and puts them on her fridge. 
So you can take a place on her fridge if you leave me a good review. As you will hear, Dr. Walls' story of recovery is truly inspiring. And the great news is that you can also leverage these simple strategies that she used to reclaim her health. So without further delay, I present to you a self-proclaimed modern hunter-gatherer, Dr. Terry Walls. Okay, Dr. Terry Wallace, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Great to be with you. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate it. So let me begin by just expressing some gratitude uh, for all the protocols that you've developed that helped so many people manage uh, MS specifically, but autoimmune disease, you know, in general. And mm-hmm. um, I am uh, getting acquainted with your Walls Warriors and your your battalion is certainly growing. Um, and, you know, there just can be so much confusion and fear associated with the onset of autoimmune disease. And just, you know, you've given people tremendous agency um, with your books and, and with your app. And I know that you have an uh, upcoming autoimmune challenge at the, coming up at the end of August, which we can talk about. Um, but these protocols that can be adopted kind of outside of pharmacology uh, that address health at its root cause have really empowered a lot of people. So, so thank you. Thank you so much for your work. Mm-hmm. It gives people hope. Yeah. Yeah. And I think hope can, um, can translate agency and especially the understanding of mechanism, which you do such a great job outlining, um, allows people to adopt certain particular behaviors in a way where they actually understand what's going on. You know, I think that's critical. You have to understand, um, at least a high level, how something can work so that you're willing to put in the effort to change your routine to accommodate these new actions. Because, you know, we don't make changes uh, just because someone told us to. You might have done that when you were a little child. But very quickly, even our children, you know, they won't do things that we tell them unless they understand why. And as adults, we aren't going to take on a new task unless we understand why and the reason. What I'd like to do, Jeff, is to begin with telling people my story um, uh, of how I became ill and how my life was transformed. So, you know, before entering medical school... I'm an athlete. I uh, compete in full contact Taekwondo. I'm a kick em up kind of girl. Uh, bronze medalist in the Pan American trials. Enter medical school, do well. But during medical school, I started having electrical uh, discomforts, uh, 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 face pains. About 20 years later, I developed weakness in my left leg. And my neurologist uh, tells me that I have multiple sclerosis. I see the best people. I take the newest drugs, and still within three years, I'm in a tilt-recline wheelchair. Um, my neurologist mentions uh, the work of Lauren Cardain. I, after having been a vegetarian for many years, uh, read his works, uh, his books, uh, and decide to go back to eating meat. Very big deal. I continue to decline. Um, I uh, decide to start reading the basic science. 
and develop a theory that mitochondria are what's driving disability in the setting of MS. And so I begin taking supplements that slow my decline. I'm very grateful, but I'm still declining. My face pains are getting uh, much, much worse. Uh, and to think about that, that's like a, a cattle prod, electrical ca cattle prod that hits me right here, a jolt of this intense electrical pain for just a second. It's more, they're turned on more frequently. They're more difficult to turn off. Uh, and by the summer of 2007, I can walk very short distances with two walking sticks. Otherwise, I'm in a tilt recline wheelchair. I can't sit up anymore. Um, I am beginning to have some brain fog. My face pain is more frequent, more severe. It's clear to me I'm destined to become likely bedridden, likely demented, quite possibly having to um, endure the trigeminal neuralgia permanently on. And when it's on, a breeze triggers the pain, light triggers the pain, sound triggers the pain, talking, swallowing, speaking triggers the pain. I have a very grim future, 2007. Uh, and that's when I have the, and I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine. I take the course in neuroprotection. I have a longer list of supplements, which I add. And um, I discover electrical stimulation of muscles. I add that to my physical therapy. And then I had this really big aha. And actually, I'm quite embarrassed now. It took me this long to have this aha. It's like, what if I redesigned my paleo diet based on the science that I've been studying, my mitochondrial nutrients? And so that takes me several more months. I, I get my diet redesigned. And I eat this new way starting uh, December 26, 2007. By the end of January, so four weeks later, my pain is definitely less. My brain fog is less. And beginning of February, my physical therapist says, Terry, you're getting stronger. And he has me, he advances my little simple mat exercises, and he has me to start lifting weights. Now, mind you, Jeff, these are little tiny weights, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm moving along, and I, be, I can sit up. I can have supper with my family at the table. That's a big deal. And then, and I used to ride my bike with my family a lot, so I asked uh, my wife, you know, do you think I could try riding the bike again? It says, well, maybe in the fall, things keep going well. Well, two weeks later, you know, it's Mother's Day, and I decide I want to try riding my bike. So we have to have this emergency family meeting. My teenage children don't want me to ride the bike because they're afraid you know, I'll fall and get hurt. But Jack decides that I can try. So she tells my, my big six-foot-five, 16-year-old son to jog alongside on the left, my daughter to jog alongside on the right, and she'll follow. And I push off. And I bike around the block. My 16-year-old son is crying. My daughter's crying. My wife's crying. And I'm crying. And when I tell that story, I still cry because that is when I, my understanding of disease and health has changed. That is when I understand that the current understanding of secondary progressive multiple sclerosis is incomplete. And who knew how much recovery might be possible? And so I, I kept riding my bike a little bit more every day, doing my little workouts. And in October, I rode 18.5 miles.
stops. And once again, my family's crying, my wife's crying, and I'm crying when I cross that finish line. And you know that fundamentally changed how I approached uh, care in my in my clinics. It would change the focus of my research, and it would change the mission of my life to let other people with progressive chronic complex autoimmune disease know that there's much they can do, and who knows how much recovery might be possible for them as well. Hmm. Wow, Terry, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. And clearly, even 14 years later, it's as prescient and salient um, as it was in that time. And I find it just amazing that you saw that level of improvement in your condition that quickly by uh, by adopting certain protocols. I mean, it's, it's, it's a miracle. Wait, you know, and I should let people know that I'd been tinkering with my diet for years. I'd been tinkering with supplements for years. And so it wasn't just the supplements. It wasn't just the diet. It was putting everything together. It was redesigning my diet in a very specific way. This very intensive physical therapy that I was doing with my um, physical therapist who treated me like an athlete. And being a former athlete, I was, you know, I was willing to uh, go at this at a level of intensity um, that, uh, was was quite remarkable and did le lead to this stunning change in a 12-month time period where it was a struggle to, to walk, uh, you know, uh, 10 feet to being able to bike hours, hours. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, just returning, you know, to an active life with your family. I, I, I believe you have two children and I, I have three children. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one of my greatest joys is going out and just playing badminton with them and just running around. Uh -huh. And, and um, you know, it's not a preconceived thing that we do. We just on Sunday afternoon, we, hey, let's go down there. Well, and just, just do that. Yeah. yeah. So to you be know, able to restore that to people's lives, I mean, what more could, could you do with your life? And um, being able to, in January sit at the table again mm. and sit at my desk at work again. Um, so as you get more and more disabled, the, these small incremental changes have a huge impact on quality of life. Be able to sit upright uh, uh, and travel to go, be able to go to a movie theater with my family, to go out to a restaurant and sit at the table at a restaurant um, those were things I'd not been able to do for years. So maybe we can zoom out for a moment and just talk about the conundrum of autoimmune disease in general. Can, mm -hmm. can you just provide sort of a broad definition of what is autoimmunity? Sure. So um, I'm the immune cells are a really important part of the maintaining uh, and repairing our body from the wear and tear of aging. Uh, so they, they rebuild our body from damage. They protect our body from threats, infection, uh, and internal threats, cancers. Um, so you can think of that as three big functions that our immune cells uh, have. When we have an autoimmune disease, the um, 
the maintenance function has gotten confused. That we the immune cells are taking existing tissues that the immune cells are seeing as having been damaged. It therefore needing to be dissolved, eaten away, uh, because they're they're damaged, and they lack the ability to repair them normally. Uh, so if you have, uh, for example, uh, a autoimmune skin condition, you may have blistering or plaques uh, or rashes uh, in the skin. You may have damage to your lungs, uh, such as uh, asthma or pulmonary fibrosis or scarring, or in my case, damage to the brain in the uh, myelin, that uh, insulation on the wire between brain cells. Then you have multiple sclerosis and damage that interferes with your normal function in terms of your sensory input or your motor function, that is your muscles, your coordination, your mobility. Got it. So uh, I think the notion of immunity has um, infiltrated the popular culture right now in the um, wake uh, of COVID. And if there's any silver lining and I'm kind of looking for one, it's potentially that there's more public curiosity around medical science and physiology. Um, Though obviously most people associate the immune system with the body's natural defense system, you know, the ability for the body to fight off virus or bacteria or pathogenic virus or bacteria, I should say. Um, But there seems to be a confusion with autoimmunity where your body can't tell the difference between your own cells and foreign cells. Is that a general... So you can't tell the difference between my cell uh, and the outside cell. I think that's a little incorrect, Jeff. What what has happened is my body, my immune cell sees my tissues as having been damaged in some way. Uh, And so then I'm I'm like, okay, they're they're damaged, therefore it has to be replaced. I'm going to pull them out. Uh, There's a variation of that called molecular mimicry where my immune cells have recognized a particular virus or bacteria as foreign, so I know to go kill that. But the same amino acid sequence that's in that virus or bacteria shares an amino acid sequence that's present, say, in the lining of my uh, lung tissue, and so that leads to scarring of the lung or asthma, or it may share the same amino acid sequence in my skin, leading to the skin rashes, or again, in my case, the same amino acid sequence in uh, part of the brain, leading to damage in the brain. So it, it can be a couple different ways that our body's immune cells can get tripped up with this molecular mimicry concept, or that uh, it's seeing my tissues as having been damaged. Hmm. So you mentioned a number of the most um, prevalent um, autoimmune diseases. Uh, Rheumatoid arthritis is one, uh, psoriasis, obviously multiple sclerosis. um, Asthma. And asthma. Um, And these diseases present differently, but are there underlying biological pathologies that are shared 
by all mm-hmm. of these different autoimmune diseases. A- absolutely. Uh, and uh, some of these, uh, some of the first steps that occur is that the microbes that live in and on our body, uh, we, we know there's a certain healthy mix that uh, you can have, and then there is what is known as a unhealthy mix of bacteria. I, I, and you may have too many uh, candida or yeast species, not enough of the lactobacillus or bifidobacter species uh, in that community is now associated with uh, disease uh, and a much higher rate of autoimmune disease, a higher rate of leakiness of the that barrier between the uh, lining uh, of the intestine and your bloodstream. Uh, we, we call that sort of a leaky gut. And when that leaky gut happens, food proteins that haven't been fully digested get into your bloodstream. Bacteria fragments can get into your bloodstream. And that causes the immune cells uh, to be uh, activated, uh, to be making a lot of inflammation molecules because they're on uh, heightened uh, awareness. And uh, these molecules uh, called cytokines increase the probability of developing a autoimmune disease, in- increase the severity of symptoms if you have a autoimmune disease. Uh, and so having that leaky gut is the one of the early steps that go wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and uh, that can lead to uh, a variety of symptoms that will uh, occur for five to 10 years. That's um, called sort of the prodrome before people go on to develop the overt autoimmune diagnosis. Uh, whether that's rheumatoid arthritis, um, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, autoimmune thyroid disease, um, uh, severe asthma. So I think what you just described there is so essential and crucial uh, for people to understand. Um, You know, you talk about leaky gut or what some people refer to as intestinal permeability which is directly associated with our standard American diet, so the overconsumption of sugar um, and you know processed foods, and w- which we can talk about, alcohol, but also PPIs, NSAIDs, the overprescription of antibiotics, um, herbicides, and um, like glyphosate, et cetera, that are uh, essentially breaking down those tight junctures in the epithelial uh, wall that are then leading to this chronic inflammation. But I think the the extra step that you just outlined for me anyways, was that that chronic inflammation, um, that agitation of the immune system heightens the release of these uh, inflammatory cytokines that then can lead to all these diseases. Now, I wonder... And it doesn't happen quickly, Jeff. Right. And it's progressive, which is the amazing thing. Yeah. It sort of simmers along for years. And people in your audience may have had trouble with um, headaches, 
migraines. They may have had trouble with really heavy periods, you know, heavy, painful periods that were eventually told that they had cysts and endometriosis. Uh, they may have had pelvic pain or painful intercourse, which they just thought, well, okay, that's just life. You know, I just have painful periods. Uh, and then finally, someone did an ultrasound and said, oh, I think you actually have endometriosis. Or they may have had um, a pelvic surgery looking for that severe pelvic pain. And that's when they found out they had the, the endometriosis. That is where the lining of the endometrium escapes and it makes little cysts on the ovaries, on the colon, on the uterus. And all of that is part of the prodrome uh, as a result of this leaky gut, this overactivated innate immune system that percolates along for five to 10 years. Uh, and women uh, are more likely to have infertility and have to go through infertility treatments, uh, taking hormones uh, and perhaps the assisted reproductive technology, uh, GIFT or IVF. Uh, and then they finally have their, their child or a couple children. And then their, their, their symptoms are continuing. They may have been told, well, you have a positive anti-nuclear antibody, but it's not high enough to make a clear diagnosis. Your rheumatoid factor isn't high enough to diagnose uh, rheumatoid arthritis yet. Um, so we'll, we'll just watch and wait. But the person knows they've been feeling a little worse every year. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, for people in their 20s and 30s that might think to themselves, oh, well, I can eat anything or, you know, I don't have to worry about this sort of thing because this is, these are diseases of the elderly or of, of late middle age. But I think what you're describing is that these diseases are progressive and the onset mm -hmm. is slow. And then all of, you know, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in your fifties and, and, and it becomes completely debilitating or, 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 or in your forties. Yeah. Um, and if the physicians who had seen them for their chronic headaches or their pelvic pain or endometriosis have put together that um, this is an autoimmune process that is responsive to addressing diet and lifestyle factors and taught their patients about diet and lifestyle to address those root causes then it's quite possible to completely reverse the damage, to completely heal the leaky gut, to lower the inflammatory cytokines, to reverse the positive ANA, to reverse the endometriosis, to reverse the infertility, to, re to resolve the chronic headaches, and never have to go on to develop rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis or inflammatory bowel disease. But you know, unfortunately, most uh, conventional physicians have not been taught that connection. Uh, and so, you know, they're, they're doing the best they can. They, they see people, they, they can't make a diagnosis yet and just say, well, I don't know. Come back and I'll see you next year. Yeah. Well, there's so much to address there. Um, even just like where the role that primary care physicians play in our 
medical industry where they're really yeah. unsupported by the insurance industry. And so they're kind of put into this untenable position of just like writing scripts because they've got 15 minutes to see a patient because that's, that's the only way they can make ends meet. <laughs> that's a long appointment. If you got 15 minutes, most often it's only yeah. seven. Yeah. Um, you know, that's pretty tough. Yeah. So you described a little bit about the upstream um, condition of leaky gut. I know that you also talk quite a bit about mitochondrial dysfunction mm -hmm. as one of the yeah. uh, consilient um, conditions across a lot of these autoimmune diseases. That's very, very important. Yeah. Can you talk about that a bit? Well, um, remind everyone that mitochondria uh, first broke onto the scene about a billion and a half years ago when the oxygen level rose in the atmosphere and killed off 98% of life because oxygen was actually a very toxic compound. Uh, and fortunately, through evolutionary history, you know, by like, you know, random mutation by random mutation, the Krebs cycle sequence evolved that utilized oxygen to make uh, this wonderful, wonderful molecule called ATP that our cells use to drive the chemistry of life. And these ancient bacteria that were that had evolved to make the Krebs cycle were engulfed by bigger bacteria, and this new organism, you know, flourished, and you know was very very effective. That new organism ultimately becomes the forerunners of animals, and of course, you know, it was a forerunner of us. And the these new cells are able to specialize into organs. Uh, and so uh, they can specialize into nervous tissue, into bones, into muscles, into glands. In those parts of our of our bodies, those cells that have to do the most work will have the most mitochondria in them. So things like um, your brain, your retina, your heart will have the most mitochondria per cell. And my reading, uh, you know, back there in 2004 when I'm in the wheelchair, uh, I developed the theory that uh, disability was being driven by the mitochondria not performing well in the brain. Uh, and so I wanted to have these supplements that could help bolster the efficiency of my mitochondria. And, and those diseases affecting the brain, uh, uh, retina, eyes, and the heart, um, are deeply connected to mitochondrial efficiency. So in my clinical practice, uh, uh, people with the uh, disease complexes or symptoms complexes in those areas, I help them uh, improve the efficiency of the mitochondria. And yeah, part of it is targeted supplements, but we can also think about this in terms of uh, nutrition. Uh, if you can think back to uh, ninth grade biology, um, uh, there was this beautiful oval shape with little squiggles in the middle, and all the squiggles are the cell membranes where those proteins reside that have the Krebs cycle that generate all that ATP. So you need a lot of fat, uh, the correct fats, omega-3, omega-6 fats, to make those cell membranes. You'll need B vitamins. You'll need coenzyme Q. And you need a lot of minerals, particularly magnesium, zinc, selenium, uh, uh, for uh, the mitochondria to work really well. There are a few other things. Um, 
creatine, um, carnitine, coenzyme Q, uh, that can also be helpful. And, and uh, I want to remind everyone that, I, I, so I devised this really elegant supplement cocktail for my mitochondria. And it was helpful because if I didn't take them, I felt worse, but they didn't get me out of the wheelchair. I had to fix my diet and my whole lifestyle to get out of the wheelchair. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. It's almost like you put yourself through an autodidactic medical school halfway through your career. <laughs> yes, you know, um, I, I'd laugh. That is, you know, getting my MS diagnosis was, you know, my second uh, medical school. Um, so, your know, medical school is hard, learned a lot. Uh, it's a lot of fun, uh, very intense. And then when I got diagnosed with MS, I learned what it was like to be a patient. That was very humbling. And then I had to go back to basic science to learn all that I could to try and figure out how to... And when I first did all this, Jeff, I did this intense um, reading, self-experimentation, not to get better. Because, you know, I was seeing the best people in the country. They had told me very consistently that with secondary progressive MS, it's a progressive disease. There is no recovery. Functions once lost are gone forever. So I was taking these incredibly toxic drugs to slow my decline because I knew recovery wasn't possible. And so as I was tinkering, you know, with my self-care and doing my intensive physical therapy, my electrical stimulation of muscles, and I'm redesigning my diet, I was doing this to slow my decline. I had zero expectation of recovery. In fact, as I was getting better and you know, beginning to walk again, um, I, I want to remind people that anyone with a progressive, particularly a progressive neurologic disorder, part of the adaptation is that you finally let go of the future. You finally come to acceptance like, okay, I will cope by just taking each day as it unfolds. So I was still in the taking each day as it unfolded, you know, thrilled that I could walk a little bit again, thrilled I could walk around the block again, but it, but I didn't know what it meant. Yeah. It was the day I rode my bike that I was like, wow, how much recovery might be possible? Wow. You know, the way that you were able to study kind of other um, cognitive uh, or neurodegenerative diseases, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's, did that give you any kind of window into developing your protocols? Were there any clues there in the clinical studies that were going on around, well, you know, some of these conditions? You know, when I first started uh, going to the basic science, at first I was looking for drug studies. Then I finally had this big aha, like, well, I, I'm not going to be able to get ac access to these drugs. I should start looking for things I could access. So that got me down supplement studies. I, and so I was looking at MS supplement studies. I, and then I thought, well, but you know, I don't have relapses anymore. This is all just progressive disease. So I should be looking for, and nobody studied, nobody studies progressive MS because 
it, it, people don't get better. So they, they say relapse, you're admitting MS. So that's like, you know, I, I got to go to other progressive disorders. So that's when I went to Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, um, uh, the dementias, Huntington's, ALS. I, and as I was reading, I thought, okay, mitochondria were the, seemed to be the common thread for all of those diseases. Uh, then I got into like, okay, so what do mitochondria need? Um, what do we know about them? Uh, how can I uh, better support that? You know, I did not come easily to this, Jeff. I did not come easily to this. But you, you know, you, you did what a scientist really does, which is ask humble questions, right? And pull threads. And, and you just kept and it, going yeah. and looking. And then, you know, um, you know, and I had a little, my, my first little supplement cocktail, I added them. And you know, after about six months, I thought, uh, phooey, nothing's happening. And so I quit them because uh, um, I was so annoyed. And then, you know, 24 hours later, I just could not get up out of bed. And uh, on the third day, uh, Jackie came in and said, you know, honey, I think I ought to try your supplements again. So I, so I took them. And the next morning, I could get up and go to work. Now, I, I thought, wow, that's really interesting. So two weeks later, I did the same experiment. I stopped my little mitochondrial cocktail. You know, 24 hours later, I just really could not get out of bed. I waited three days, and I resumed my supplements. And then I was so jazzed. Um, mm. I was very excited uh, to be reading the basic science. I told my institutional review board, uh, and, as I, and this is the committee that reviews research at the University of Iowa. I said, you know, give me all of the studies that uh, have to do with the brain. Uh, and so I got progressively more comfortable with reading uh, brain science uh, and more comfortable with uh, thinking more that, you know, there are things I can do. There are things that I can do. So let's just talk specifically about MS. Now, you mentioned briefly um, before, it's essentially the immune system attacks these nerve fibers and the, the myelin sheathing, I think it's called, yeah, uh, mm -hmm. which is kind of a fatty substance. I've always heard it kind of, um, there's a metaphor there with a, with a wire, like an electrical wire that's insulated. And um, yeah. can, can you talk a little bit about kind of specifically the mechanism of, of multiple sclerosis. And then, you know, as you began to uh, identify this degradation of myelin as one of the key issues, how you then um, developed a protocol to or an understanding of what are the building blocks of myelin. You know, you were just doing this very... Yeah. It, it sounds like it just makes total sense, but you were just dissecting the issue and just putting one foot you know, in front of the other. <laughs> you know, I, I suppose you know, it begins with the supplements that I'm, I'm uh, zeroed in on mitochondria, that I, I start uh, having a deeper understanding of what are the uh, nutrients that mitochondria need. Uh, and then uh, coming back to myelin and understanding myelin uh, uh, we, we presently think the immune cells are attacking the myelin, and it's sort of a spotty 
um, uh, lesions appear uh, in the spinal cord, in the brain. Uh, and so it's not all myelin that's destroyed, but it destroys myelin in particular a spot. You might have one spot or two spots or four spots or 20 spots. Uh, and so the, the current understanding is that we will give you a drug that interferes with your immune cells function in some capacity, either blunting them all globally or blunting a particular uh, step. No one has had the approach of, well, what, what do we need to make myelin? Uh, so I, I began to think about that. Well, uh, what what do we know? What what are the scientists saying that we need for brain cells? What are the scientists saying that we need for uh, making myelin? Uh, and so th there were a few review papers that talked about uh, some of these nutrients with vitamins and minerals, uh, essential fats. That uh, basically is about making sure you have plenty of great nutrition. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's embarrassing to go back and look at, you know, what did I learn in medical school about nutrition? Mm -hmm. Low-fat diet, avoid cholesterol, use margarine instead of butter. And that was sort of like all that I yeah. really uh, remember <laughs> from my nutrition uh, that I got uh, in medical school. Uh, and then during residency, did I get any nutrition? Again, it was avoid cholesterol, use margarine, avoid uh, uh, butter, avoid eggs. Uh, and so I yeah, followed a, you know, a very low-fat diet, um, um, legumes, rice, uh, vegetables. Uh, so it certainly looked like a very heart-healthy diet. As I you know, got more curious that mitochondria were the solution uh, and what do brain cells need, then uh, fat, because myelin is fat, and cell membranes are the fatty parts of the cell membrane that are wrapped again and again and again to make the myelin. And that's like, okay, uh, that turns out to need cholesterol, omega-3 fats, um, uh, so icosapetanoic acid, the cosaxanoic acid, uh, that's in uh, cold water fish, uh, grass-fed, grass-finished meats, omega-6 fats, uh, those are in nuts and seeds, uh, 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 flax oil, hemp oil uh, would be uh, good sources of those as well. Uh, because you and I, we, we, we lack the molecular uh, machinery to make the omega-3 bond or the omega-6 bond, and those fats are essential for our cell membrane, uh, they're essential for some of our neurotransmitters. Um, so you have to eat those. We also need to have cholesterol. While we can make cholesterol, if you're on a very, very low-fat diet, sometimes your uh, blood cholesterol levels are so low, you, you can't make enough sex hormones, cortisol hormones, and you're having difficulty having enough cholesterol for your uh, cell membranes as well. So uh, a very low-fat diet can get you into trouble that way. Yeah, what was the standard of care um, at the point where you know you were doing some of this research? What was the typical standard of care? Well, the, so the standard of care would would be um, to take a disease modifying drug, 
And in the two in the two thousand, when I was diagnosed, that would have been one of the interferons, such as um, Abinex or beta seron or a decoy protein uh, uh, called Paxone. Uh, right. And then, if you at the point that you converted to the progressive phase of the illness, then you take a form of chemotherapy called mitoxantrum, hmm. uh, which, by the way, gives you a, a two percent chance of converting to uh, leukemia each time you take it, uh, plus it's toxic uh, to your heart, so it increases the probability of heart failure. In uh, uh, um, so it's it's certainly a very very toxic drug, uh, and there, there's a um, a limit to how many total doses that you can get uh, in your lifetime. Uh, so that was the next thing that I took. There was zero emphasis on diet. You're basically told, you know, eat what you want, enjoy your life. It doesn't really matter. Uh, uh, fortunately, my physicians uh, did check for B vitamin uh, uh, B12. And not everyone knows to check for B12. Uh, and they did suggest that since I'd been a vegetarian, to take uh, a B12 supplement, uh, which I uh, did do. Uh, although I, I will give my neurologist credit, they were the one who introduced me to the work of Lauren Cordain uh, and uh, did mention uh, the work of Ashton Embry. So reading uh, their two papers in their books, uh, that led me to the decision to, and it was a big decision at the time, to abandon uh, the uh, vegetarian, low-fat vegetarian diet and uh, go back to eating meat. Yeah, well, I, I want to begin to um, probe your dietary um, recommendations and the different kind of forms of paleo diet that exists out there. Um, I guess before that, I wanted to ask, are, are there certain risk factors um, associated with, with MS? Or essentially, are, yeah. are some demographics more predisposed to developing? Sure. It? Well, we know that the further you are from the equator, the higher the rates of multiple sclerosis. Um, we also know that uh, people, Caucasians uh, and uh, African Americans, have higher rates of multiple sclerosis than um, uh, people who are uh, Asian uh, or Latina, Latino. Uh, uh, we also know that smokers are at higher risk, uh, and that if you have a parent uh, or sibling, your risk will increase two to five percent uh, compared to uh, the general population. And that uh, there's probably a interplay between genes, and there's 200 to 300 different genes that increase the risk for autoimmunity, whether it's MS, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, or any of the hundreds of other autoimmune disease states. But the vast majority of people who have one of those um, genetic genes don't develop the autoimmune disease. So it's, it's an interplay between the genes that we have, my smoking history, my lifetime of diet choices, physical activity, toxin exposures, 
uh, probably my microbiome, my family, my self-talk, that all interplay to lead to the prodrome and then the autoimmune diagnosis. And then if I don't address the root causes every five to 10 years, an an additional autoimmune diagnosis will develop. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think that there uh, is any correlation between um, lack of kind of UVB exposure? Uh, There's a uh, in many diseases, there's, you know, low vitamin D levels. And you mentioned because, yeah. of, you know, people that are farther from the equator. So I wonder if getting out and getting a little bit of sun is not a bad idea. Yeah. So certainly having um, a, a a low vitamin D status is associated, is associated with much higher rates of autoimmunity and anxiety and depression and insulin resistance and preterm labor in a lot of poor health issues. So our ancestors for millions of years were outside in sunlight 24 seven. And now we live and work inside and we do our recreation inside. And because of the association between ultraviolet radiation and skin cancer, when we go outside, we either put on sun shirts or sunscreens to make sure we don't get a tan and a sunburn, but it also means that we won't make vitamin D. Yeah, I think you just built a beautiful bridge, uh, I think, into the next um, section of the conversation because you, know, you reference of evolution and how there's certain adaptive mechanisms to what it is to be human that were developed over millions of years, or at least hundreds of thousands of years. And, uh, and then, but we've changed our culture such that mm-hmm. culture is outpacing evolution, if you will. Yeah. Um, so, so you mentioned, okay, we, we used to live spend uh, the majority of our time outside. I think the last statistic I I read, at least in the Western world, we spend 94% of our time inside. Um, And and then, of course, it's not just, um, you know, our exposure to to the sun. It's also our diet that has changed so much. And, um, Uh you know, we have just, with our standard American diet and a diet that focuses on, refined grains and, and refined sugars and processed foods that have made made artificially cheap to be tr- produced under the true cost of production, um, which is a whole nother conversation to do with our farm bill and our, our, yeah. our, our agricultural industry. But I think, you know, I'd love for you to kind of uh, pull a little bit on this uh, notion of becoming the modern day hunter gatherer, which I've heard you call yourself, but I yeah. just love, I love that idea. Um, and it's a, a beautifully coined phrase. You know, and clearly when we, um, humans originated in equatorial Africa, we expand uh, up to Northern Europe, pardon me, Northern Africa, meet the Neanderthals, have a hundred thousand year war, Right. And eventually we absorb the Neanderthals, and you and I have 2 to 5% Neanderthal DNA. 
Um, and so we're a little bit Neanderthal, uh, but then we you know, migrate into Northern Europe, across to Asia, Australia, North and South America. So humans eat a wide variety of things and a wide variety of ecosystems. And then uh, in the last 10,000 years, we radically changed our diet, made it very narrow. Uh, uh, we have a, a, the agricultural food supply. Uh, and then we changed it radically again with the industrial uh, revolution. Uh, and then we changed it again with the uh, 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 confinement uh, uh, and confined agricultural uh, animal feeding uh, uh, operations. And so now the meat that people consume uh, is, at least here in the United States, is largely from confined animal feedlot operations. Uh, so these animals are never outside. They're eating grain. They're not eating grass. And so that meat is radically different than the meat our, my ancestors would have had or your ancestors 10,000 years ago. That meat is relatively low in uh, vitamin K2. So uh, there are uh, some observations that the vitamin K2 levels have plummeted, which has uh, some uh, big financial, uh, big health consequences in terms of how we mineralize our teeth, our bones, um, how our mitochondria work, and, and how we uh, make uh, myelin, and how uh, brain stem cells uh, mature. We don't have as much uh, uh, vitamin D, uh, uh, vitamin A, uh, B vitamins, uh, or minerals in the meat. Um, and, and this is based on USDA uh, statistics that they've been accumulating on our meat, apple, um, uh, um, since I think 1913. And the vitamin and mineral content of our foodstuffs have sharply declined over the last 100 years because we have changed how we farm. So even if I'm trying to have uh, a be a modern day hunter gatherer, so I'm eating vegetables, fr berries, meat, fish, eggs. That those products, because they are, are have are, are being produced in a very different way, are less nutritious than they were a hundred years ago, or a thousand years ago. So so that makes it uh, challenging. Yeah, I mean, I, I start to think about CAFOs, which are these uh, confined animal feeding operations that you, you mentioned. And yeah, I mean, we're force feeding our cattle grain with when they're evolved to digest grass, and then we're inoculating them full of antibiotics. I start to actually think about their physiological status. They probably actually all have leaky gut too, they have leaky gut. They have metabolic syndrome. They have a shortened lifespan. Right. So they're they're insulin resistant. They're full of cortisol, and then you know we're that's what we're eating. Um, so yes, uh, and we, we've created this circumstance where we are trying to figure out how to feed, you know, three billion, six billion, seven billion. I think uh, I don't know what our population in the world is now. Maybe eight billion. Um, uh, so I, I, I realize that 
uh, governments uh, and our agricultural community is trying to figure out how to feed everyone. Uh, I, I think back to World War II when it was the patriotic duty to have a garden uh, and it was the you know ex expected that we build a, a cook our meals at home and we would eat together. In my uh, clinics at the VA where we when we created the therapeutic lifestyle clinic um, and we taught people how to implement you know the kind of diet uh, approach that I have uh, to health. One of the observations we had, Jeff, is people don't know how to meal plan. They don't know how to shop or plan for leftovers or how to cook. So in addition to teaching people about leaky gut and the root cause of their disease and all that they could do, we would teach them how to, how to cook. We'd teach them how to meal plan. We'd teach them how to plan for leftovers. And, and I would teach them how to do this using a um, you know very limited financial means because you know my, my folks were disabled living on food stamps shopping in small rural grocery stores in Iowa and, and northern Missouri uh, western Illinois uh, and we had people transform their lives living on food stamps implementing you know basically uh, the Walls protocol so when people tell me hey Terry I can't do that because you know I'm not I'm not a doctor I can't spend uh, all of that money going to Whole Foods. And I'm like, well, I assure you, my farmers in northern Missouri and southern Iowa were not going to Whole Foods either. They were going to their local um, grocer. And yes, they were using conventional foods. And uh, we taught them how to uh, do some, you know, rice and beans uh, and uh, some vegetarian meals to make this more affordable for them. So you, no, you don't have to. You don't have to do this as a paleo eater. Although I certainly encourage meat, um, but you will greatly benefit from learning how to cook. You'll greatly benefit from learning how to uh, meal plan and how to uh, plan for leftovers. And and you know, eating up all of your foods, so you're not throwing away uh, your groceries. Yeah, uh, I was interviewing Paul Hawken. He gave me a statistic that was just staggering that 33% of all the food that we buy and ends up in the garbage. Yeah. And it's, and it's taking up 25% of the landfill. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it's a huge burden. Uh, and uh, I think that's because we've not taught people um, how to meal plan uh, so that uh, they can use up uh, all of their food. Mm-hmm. So let's dive a little bit deeper into your particular signature on the paleo diet, and maybe you could address the paleo diet kind of at a high level, and then mm -hmm. we can kind of go more granular in terms of what are the building blocks for thing to synthesize myelin or neurotransmitters or sure. what feeds mitobiogenesis, biogenesis, the essentially the creation yeah. of new mitochondria. So uh, the paleo diet uh, is trying to help you take what's available in your grocery store now, wherever that is, uh, uh, into reconstructed diet that looks more like what our ancestors would have eaten. So on a really high level, uh, the protein source is meat, poultry, fish, eggs, if you tolerate them. Uh, and then um, you're not having grains or added sugars. But you are having uh, a lot of vegetables, 
that might be tubers. Uh, uh, so yeah, it could be potatoes, yams, squashes, uh, uh, cabbages, onions, mushrooms, uh, berries, uh, and fruit. Uh, and uh, that's, that's what you're having. Uh, and it's not that we're importing food, foods from a different continent or across the continents. You're getting foods, ideally, that are in season uh, and locally available. Uh, and so if you're in Canada, you're eating a slightly different set of food than if you're in Florida or you're in Africa or Australia. Because I want you to eat, you know, the protein sources and vegetables and fruits that are native to your area. The um, uh, paleo folks really focused on what to avoid, which was uh, grains, sugars, processed foods. They didn't put a whole lot of guidance into what to eat. When I had my recovery, it's because I put a lot of guidance into like, okay, what do I have to eat to get everything to work? Uh, and originally it was based on uh, the uh, list of uh, 18 different nutrients. And actually it's now 34 that I track uh, that I wanna be sure everyone has. And I had long list of foodstuffs that I knew I needed to eat every week. Well, when I started teaching my vets that, I realized I couldn't possibly give them a list. That's just not teachable. It's not implementable. So then I had to go back to thinking like, okay, I need to have something that people could, I could teach in just a couple minutes that people could remember and you could use to guide you to mostly get those 34 things that I, I want you to have. And that's where I came up with um, six to 12 ounces of, of protein. And that's two palm size servings uh, of meat, fish. And then I have um, a largely male clientele uh, at the VA. Uh, and so I, this was for tall women and men. So it's nine cups of uh, vegetables uh, and fruit. And Jeff, you'll, this will make you laugh. Mm -hmm. My vets would say, now, is that per week or month? And I'd say, no, no, that's per day. And they'd go like, what? How is that possible? <laughs> yeah, and, and so it's like three cups of green leafy vegetables, three cups of cabbage, onion, mushroom family vegetables, three cups of deeply pigmented. And there's no need to make yourself over full so, I mean, if you're hungry, eat more vegetables and berries if you've already had your uh, 12, 12 ounces uh, of meat. If you are a petite lady, and we had some very petite people in my clinics and in my clinical trials. Um, so if you're, you know, four foot 10 uh, lady, you're not going to get nine cups of vegetables in. You're going to get maybe six ounces of meat because your, your palms are much smaller than mine. And maybe it's going to be four to five cups of vegetables, and that's fine. This is the starting point. This is not the ending point. This is where you start and you adapt. And if, if you're one of my gentlemen who you're doing construction work, you're doing a lot of heavy manual labor, then yes, you're going to maybe need more protein. And you'll maybe be having 15 servings, 15 cups 
of vegetables. One of the um, micronutrients that I've heard you mention that was really very new to me, not really particularly on my radar day to day, was sulfur kind of as the building blocks of neurotransmitters and also what feeds mitogenesis and and um, yeah. supports our mitochondria. And can you talk about where we can find sulfur in our food? You know, the um, sulfur vegetables, cabbage family, onion family, um, mushrooms uh, have uh, sulfur in them, uh, uh, particularly the cabbage family, well, and the onion family uh, as well, uh, that will boost your ability to process, eliminate toxins. It will boost your brain's ability to make neurotransmitters, particularly the calming neurotransmitter, gamma aminobutyric acid. It will mm. boost your cells' ability to make uh, glutathione, which is sort of the master antioxidant, uh, which is very protective for your mitochondria. And then, you know, some of the things that can boost mitochondrial efficiency is not eating. Okay, I was going to ask you about this, what your, um, <laughs> what your viewpoint is, because fasting, intermittent fasting, water fasting, a myriad different fasting techniques uh, is certainly in the zeitgeist uh, right now. A lot of people are discussing yeah. it. I wonder what your general well, position is on it. So let's go back to our ancestral mothers and fathers. You know, when we separated from the primates six million years ago, when our genus uh, emerged um, two million years ago, food you know, was, was plentiful, sort of. If there was a drought, it wasn't around. If the hunt was good, it was around. And then if the hunt was not good, you know, we'd be hungry. And furthermore, in order to get the hunt, our men, our, our ancestral fathers, would travel, they would literally run down the prey. We weren't stronger, we weren't faster, but we could sweat and we could endure. We could just keep jogging slowly after them and eventually the wildebeest would keel over from heat exhaustion. And, the, and our, our ancestral dads would, would hike up the wildebeest and carry it nine miles home. The ladies were sort of, you know, having a one to one and a half mile range where we are gathering. And by the way, we made little um, nuts and we, we, we were good at small game uh, in tubers, in, in leaves, uh, and the fruit there would, would have been uh, much smaller, uh, not like the uh, starchy bananas and apples uh, that we get to enjoy now. Uh, and the social compact was we'd fix uh, ancestral dad's meal, feed him, and then we'd get to eat. Uh, and so you'd have periods of plentiful food in periods of no food or periods of intense physical activity to get the food. So the intense physical activity is great driver for uh, more mitochondria. 
periods of absent food is a great driver to make more mitochondria. A driver to make fewer mitochondria is continuous eating. If you want to, if you want to make your mitochondria less effective, sickly, and fewer in number, eat all of the time, snack all day long. So my advice is stop the snacking. First go to three meals a day. And then if you're up to it, two meals a day. And then if you're up to it, one meal a day. And then if you want to be more adventuresome, occasionally skip a day. If you want to be more adventuresome still, occasionally skip two days. But there's no need to rush into this. If you if you rush into a fasting strategy too quickly, you'll you'll just give yourself migraines, headaches, you'll feel miserable, and it'll be a, a terrible experience. Take your time for those transitions. Yeah, I, I think you point out something that here that that can be almost globalized where you know, the body works like the yin and the yang. There's crests and troughs. It, there's growth, and then there's protective measures or restoration. You know, almost mm -hmm. every hormone has its counterpart. Insulin has glucagon. You know, neurotransmitters for every serotonin or oxytocin. There's the adrenaline and norepinephrine. We And, you know, when we align ourselves with, the adaptive foundational wisdom of nature, we find this balance. So we have these different cellular pathways like mammalian mm -hmm. target of rapamycin, mTOR, which is very growth oriented. And then, but then we have AMPK, which is a different cellular pathway that in a fasted state, we can activate that. And that seems to be quite good for our mitochondria. So this idea of scarcity and abundance we actually evolved adaptively for that kind of circumstance. But now again, culture has outpaced uh, evolution where we can access any kind of fruit in season, out of season, 24 seven, you know, in the palm of our hand. And yeah. that seems to be getting ourselves into a, a lot of trouble. You know, um, <clears throat> oh, there's some beautiful charts that look at uh, the map of biochemistry. Uh, in that life has evolved over, I believe, about 3 billion years through random mutations to be um, self-corrected uh, chemistry with checks and balances. And if we look at this, this big, beautiful map of biochemistry, much of our biochemical pathways are common uh, in bacteria, um, plants, animals, fungi, uh, across many species, which allow us to do um, many animal studies to deepen understanding of, of uh, disease states uh, uh, very cost-effectively. Uh, and uh, the NIH loves to fund those kinds of studies. It is a great way to understand physiology. But if we think that we could take a single molecular pathway and use a drug to create health, we miss the fact that the map is so richly interconnected. You if you look at just one pathway, you forgot that it's connected and has a lot of checks and balances. And so missing with that one path won't lead to health. 
you have to support all of the paths that you can. And that's what I, that's what I study. Yeah. It's funny that, uh, in physics, we seem to have quite easily moved from kind of linear Newtonian mechanistic physics to quantum physics, you know, um, which is essentially a roadmap for what we could be learning here in, in medical science. Um, and of course, you know, you're, you're on the, on the pioneer side of it all. <laughs> um, yeah. Whenever you're a pioneer and the beginning, they hate you, they call you a lunatic and worse. <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, if you have a really new idea, when you go to publish your findings, you can't get it published. It's enormously difficult. You have to go to a very, very low impact journal and then you do that for your first several papers and a somewhat higher impact journal, then a somewhat higher impact journal, and then all at once you get the Nobel Prize in medicine. So uh, we'll, we'll see. I, I, I'm, I'm now, um, our work uh, is being reviewed in, in very high impact journals right now. Uh, and so hopefully in the next few months, we will be able to... Uh, um, um, talk about uh, a, a very exciting paper that will be coming out in a very, very high impact journal uh, about the way we think. Yeah, well, I'm happy to know that people are slowly getting on the bandwagon, and I'm sure it wasn't easy uh, at the beginning to uh, to forge a new path because, you know, you know, actually, I, I, yeah. I, I feel very kindly towards them because. It is true for all of us, for me and for you, our current understanding of the life and world, we're going to cling to, we will not give up our understanding easily. Uh, and we'll need overwhelming evidence presented to us again and again before we would let go of our current understanding. Uh, and so for my colleagues in neurology who have their current understanding, uh, it will take a lot of evidence again and again for them to let go of that. But but I do see progress being made. I do see more um, presentations at the uh, scientific meetings, uh, clinical meetings that I go to for MS, that there are presentations now about diet uh, in, the, in the critical role of diet and, and all the research that's being done uh, about diet and lifestyle, quality of life fatigue. There are studies being uh, published more and more about the benefit of a stress-reducing practice, about the critical role of exercise to protect the brain. So, so it is happening. Um, it, is, it is the nature uh, of humans that we, we don't give up our current understanding of the world easily. Um, yes, just ask Copernicus. Um, yeah. Um, you, you mentioned a de-stressing, um, and I've heard you talk a little bit about meditation, uh, in your books and your talks, but I wonder if you have a regular meditation practice and if that's mm -hmm. something that you recommend as part of your overall protocol. When I was in college, I learned how to do transcendental meditation. I stopped during medical school. I don't know why. When I was diagnosed with MS, and I knew that stress made my symptoms worse, I did not go back to transcendental meditation. I don't know why. I wish I had. Um, I did go back to uh, meditation. I, I 
uh, like exercise. Um, I would rather exercise than meditate, but I've, over time I've realized that I have to spend more time meditating. I uh, am back to being very careful to do 20 minutes meditation in the morning, 20 minutes of meditation in the evening. And when I do that, my sleep score in my aura ring is vastly better. And I'm like, okay, you know, yep. I am paying attention. I end that. Um, I, I wish I could use that 20 minutes on my workout side, but my sleep is better. My health is better. If I take the 20 minutes to meditate in the morning and in the evening. And so I've been uh, adjusting my life to be sure that I maintain that. I, I think um, it, we all have to sort out what's going to fit into our life, how much time I can put into my exercise, how much time I can put into my uh, meditation, uh, how much time I'm going to put into uh, my work. I, I, I will say one of the best things I did, Jeff, was retire from the VA so that I could put a little more time into my self-care routine. Because when I was still working full-time at the VA uh, and doing my research and then doing my uh, business where I was educating the public and clinicians, I didn't have enough time to do my self-care. Uh, and so uh, making a decision to retire from the VA uh, gave me the time that I could uh, do the amount of self-care that I, that I really need. Yeah, and I think it's so important that people understand that, that self-care isn't indulgent or a luxury per se. It's like, what use are you to the world if you are not your best self or if you are not well? So it, it's actually, mm -hmm. um, it's not a uh, project of the ego at all. It's actually, this is how I can be of greater utility is if, you know, I do have my meditation practice, for example. And, and, you know, we know that high stress hormones are very uh, associated with a lot of disease. So it makes complete sense if we can consciously engage in moving from sort of sympathetic overload into a parasympathetic state, well, that's going to have knock-on impacts in terms of our hormones, right? And, um, yeah. and that's going to change our, our, our physiology. It was, it's, I'm very, very fortunate uh, after having 27 years of relentlessly worsening trigeminal neuralgia with profound levels of pain that I've had to endure, um, that I now see that trigeminal neuralgia as this amazing gift because I have this continuous barometer of the level of inflammation uh, of my uh, cervical spinal cord and of my brain. Because if my inflammation is going up, if my microglia are activated and calling out their pro-inflammation producing molecules, my trigeminal neuralgia will turn on and the electrical face pain will turn on and I will be in a profound level of pain. And I have the opportunity then to sit down with my wife and go like, well, what do you think the trigger was? <laughs> How am I <laughs> yeah. doing in my self-care? What could I do better? And so now what had been such a, a difficult burden, I now see as actually this amazing gift. I don't have to go 
to the um, MRI center and get an MRI to know the activity of what's going on in my brain. I can just sort of dial into, well, have I had any episodes of face pain in the last six months or not? Hmm. And I've taught my neurologist that trick. So she's now talking to her patients about um, how they could use their neurologic symptoms as the barometer uh, of their um, in level of inflammation in their uh, central nervous system as well. Yeah, I think it's also a product of meditation is to become more physiologically self-aware where you can actually body scan. Uh, because I think we become very disassociated with actually how we feel. And it's totally mm -hmm. understandable. I mean, we're busy, we're getting pinged and dinged and distracted by external agents in this kind of an external world. But just to take, you know, that 20 minutes in the morning and in the evening to essentially just check in with your own vehicle and really see if you can feel and key in on what, you know, what might be feeling a little bit more inflamed to develop kind of an intuitive sense, not just a gut instinct, but an actually refined sense for what is happening um, in uh -huh. your body and then be able to address it with very sensical kind of protocols, which is, you know, what you've been able to outline in a way that is extremely actionable for people. Um, so, I, I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we know that those individuals who maintain their sense of internal locus of control, that, yep, there are things I can do with my diet, with my self-care, my meditation, my exercise routine, that will adjust or change my health trajectory. The people with a higher internal locus of control have more effective natural killer cells, more mm. effective immune cells, have calmer adaptive uh, and calmer innate immune systems than those who have a very low sense of internal control that I've given all of my control to my physicians, that those, in, those individuals uh, will have um, a, a more accelerated rate of decline in their autoimmune disease. Yeah. So I know that you have an autoimmune challenge um, coming up at the end of August. And just to timestamp this episode, we're, we're speaking on the 1st of August, 2022. Um, so I, yeah. I believe this is launching at the very end of August. Um, what can people expect uh, well, from, from that particular challenge? What I do is we take people through uh, five days and I give them a short lesson on um, reinforcing that internal locus of control. Uh, that is where it begins. We have to grow your sense of uh, control, that there are things that you can do. I will give you a little overview of um, what's happening with autoimmunity, complex chronic diseases, uh, 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 what's changed in the last 100 years. And I'll put it through the lens of the United States. And then we'll talk about a small identifiable next step that you could take in your journey for whatever complex chronic disease that you have 
uh, I'll put it through the lens of autoimmunity. Uh, so this is relevant if you have multiple sclerosis, inflammatory bowel disease, autoimmune thyroid disease, asthma, um, uh, psoriasis, or if you're in that prodrome strait where you have chronic migraine, headache, endometriosis, infertility, anxiety, depression. Oh, fantastic. We'll be uh, sharing that, um, and it'll be in the notes um, as well. So I'll be tuning in for sure. And I'm going to ask you the most important question I will certainly ask this week, which is, how are you feeling? How are you feeling today? Well, I had a great sleep last night. Uh, my Oura Ring uh, gave me one of my <laughs> highest sleep scores. Um, so I'm feeling uh, really, really good. Uh, and I had a great conversation today with my research team. We're working on our next research protocol uh, that'll be uh, targeting progressive MS. Because you know most of the studies are done with relapsing remitting MS. Uh, right. And we have a study going on for that population right now. Uh, and so the next study that we'll be doing will be targeting uh, progressive MS. Uh, so I, I'm very excited about that. And would you categorize yourself as cured, or is that even a word, really? <laughs> so uh, when we think of cure, it's like if I've taken an antibiotic for an infection, I'm cured, I'm done with the antibiotic, and the disease is completely over. I am highly, I, I'm recovered, I can bike for hours, hike for hours, I have a rich and full life. If I go back to my previous diet and lifestyle, my pain will be back and I'll be incapacitated. Hmm. So I am recovered, yes. Um, and I don't think anyone will ever be cured from their autoimmune disease. We can help you recover, help you have a full, rich, a meaningful life. But if you go back to your previous poor diet and lifestyle, you will likely experience a recurrence of whatever your autoimmune symptoms are. But we can certainly help you recover and once again achieve a rich and full life. Well, Dr. Terry Wallace, thank you so much uh, for this conversation, but really more generally for being brave enough and vulnerable enough to put yourself out there on the, on, in the public and... Um, and you know, really use your own journey to create a global model for health. And uh, I know that you must get a lot of positive reinforcement from, from people reaching out to you, but uh, I, I think that's only a, a speck on the pinhead um, in terms of the people that you're helping and, and influencing and, and really giving agency. So thank you so much for what you're doing. And thank you for all that you do as well, Jeff. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Terry Walls. Check out The Walls Protocol to learn more about the remarkable way that Dr. Walls uses diet and lifestyle to recover from progressively disabling diseases like MS that have no documented cure. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, 
Well, you're probably aware of how much effort we put into this show's creation, and I really do my best to keep sponsors to a minimum. It's not one of those shows where I prattle on for 15 minutes with ads. So if you're really looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way to do so is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. And you can check it out for free, no strings attached, for 14 days at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly with constructive criticism, support, suggestions, etc. at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to express my deep gratitude for the folks that make this show possible week over week. Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Alexa Pepperman, Ruby Foster, Emma Fret, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>